0: Well, I trust that's the prayer of your heart. My heart is filled with thankfulness for just being able to be here and to worship together and to know God, that God would do that for us. What a wonderful thing. Well, I want us to take our Bibles this morning and return to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are returning once again to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, as we go through this section this morning, we're going to find that this is the beginning of an entire movement in the ministry of Jesus Christ, whereby Jesus Christ begins to face opposition. It's not yet opposition from people in general, from the general crowds around him that often are flocking him. He is very popular. Everyone crowds to his ministry because they find him to be really some kind of anomaly in comparison to the rest of the world around them. He is unlike anything they have ever encountered. And so they see him as one in whom they can get help. They can get some temporal help for the difficulties of life and all that is happening In their circumstances. And so out of compassion and Jesus Christ being who He is, He is healing all of the sick. Those who are brought to Him, He is healing them. And in that, there is temporal help. Temporal help for their life. Their sicknesses are cured. Their diseases are put away. Their life seems to be better. And so they flock to Him for that kind of help. So the general public currently likes to have Jesus around. They, they find it very helpful to have Him, and so they flock to Him by the thousands. But the opposition that He begins to face comes from the religious leaders. Those who claim to know God. Those who claim to be the ones who are leading the people to God. They are the religious leaders of Israel. It's the scribes, the religious experts of the law, the lawyers. The religious lawyers are one of them, and the Pharisees, those that teach the law. Those that tell the people what the law, how they are to carry out the law. That's who's beginning to conflict with Christ. This, in other words, is the established church of the day. The established church of the day Jesus Christ is interacting with. And the established church of the day, particularly from the leadership, don't want to have Christ around. Seems rather oxymoronic, doesn't it? Here is God, those who claim to know God, those who claim to want to be around God, those who claim to have a relationship with God, and yet it is those that do not want God around. Those who you think would embrace Christ the Messiah are the very ones who have so much trouble with Christ. And the animosity only intensifies over time so that even in the coming few years, it culminates on that hill we know as Calvary whereby Jesus dies a sinner's death. So the popularity of Christ amongst the people is overshadowed then by this undergrounding, seething animosity of the religious leaders. And the reason for it is seen here once again in Luke chapter 5. It begins with a concealed opposition. A concealed opposition to the truth of God. It is a secret opposition to Christ's claim of authority As the living gospel to forgive sins. An undercurrent seething opposition to Christ's claim that he is, in fact, the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. Let me read this section for us, beginning in Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. Luke records for us, and it came about one day that he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in, and to set him down in front of him. Not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles, which with the stretcher, right in the center in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them and took up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment. And began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Let's just go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we do thank You once again for giving us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that can understand all by the power of Your Spirit. All because of Your willingness to open our eyes to the truth. Lord, we thank You for this message. We thank You for what is here that we might learn from it about You and about Your supremacy over all things. Lord, help us to receive these things this morning. That we might live according to them. So that others might see in us the power of God unto salvation. All to the glory of Christ our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen. The ministry of Jesus Christ among the people of Galilee had resulted in a large amount of enthusiasm much of which was born out of curiosity about Jesus. It was a curious crowd. But among the crowd are these religious leaders. And in them, the ministry of Christ only produced animosity. They didn't want Christ around because Christ was popular. Christ was the one in whom the people were going to hear, and they were the ones who wanted to be heard. It was an animosity that is born out of their recognition that Jesus Christ claimed authority. He claimed to be the one whom all should be listening to. In fact, Jesus says, and it's recorded for us in Mark chapter one, verse fifteen. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is a statement of authority. That is a statement that says in essence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at the very core of His authority. In other words, at the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the question Who will rule? Who will rule? Who will call the shots? When it comes to our life, when it comes to who we are and our stance before God as an individual of which all of us will stand before God, the answer is who is ruling? Who is calling the shots in our life? Who is the one who is determining our life's direction? Who is the one who is ruling our affairs? Is it going to be us or is it going to be the living God? The gospel declares that it must be God who rules. It must be God and that if it is our desire to rule ourselves, if it is our desire to have authority over our life, then the only direction that comes, the outcome, is eternal hell and punishment. A separation from God for all eternity. Why? Because in self-rule, there is no forgiveness of sin. In self-rule, there is no forgiveness of sin. You can desire to rule your own life. The answer still must be answered. What will you do about your sin? What will you do about the reality that you are sinful? Oh, sure, you can deny that reality out of your own self-professed authority, claiming that you are not sinful. I do not sin. I have not sinned. And therefore, I'm fine. You can claim all of that. And in the end, you will still answer to the ultimate authority. Who is Jesus Christ? And without Him as your Savior, you have no forgiveness of sins. Who will have authority over my life? And therefore, who will forgive my sin? that's the question, and that's the struggle of our day. It has been the struggle throughout the ages. It has been the struggle since God began to minister to men through the Garden of, the, of Eden. It is the characteristic, in fact, of the final days before Jesus Christ returns to this earth, as the Apostle Paul told Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 3, that in the last days difficult times will come. I'm not going to read that passage, you can go there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, but in that passage he lists several ways in which trouble begins to arise in the last days. All born out of the heart of man. And the thrust of it all is that man pushes aside all authority that comes from God. Any authority that seems to represent something over his own authority, man pushes that away. Certainly, I understand and we understand that authority is a very strong word. It's a very strong word and when we hear it, it often causes us to kind of flinch a little bit and cringe. What do you mean authority over me? Maybe because there's been some kind of abuse in your life. Maybe you've witnessed some kind of abuse of authority. Someone in the human realm who has exercised some kind of authority over others and has abused that delegated authority that they've had. Or maybe you cringe at the word authority because you misunderstand authority altogether. Or maybe just because authority means power and privilege. A person with authority exercises some kind of power, some kind of control over the lives and the welfare of others. So mankind in general... Find a disdain for authority. We know, as well as the Bible declares, society cannot operate without having someone or something in a position of authority. Just look around our world. Schools in our day and age, particularly here in the West in this day, must have those who are in authority or you have chaos And when that authority is abused, you have greater chaos. That's what we see happening today. A city and its community must have those in authority or you have chaos within the community. And if you remove the authority that God has given for a community, you have greater chaos. In the home, the parents must exercise their God-given authority within the home and within the family. If you do not do that, you will have chaos. So there must be authority. And Jesus Christ came to visibly show His inherent authority over all things. Particularly over sin and death. And the conflict that arises in the ministry of Jesus Christ is the same as the conflict that may arise today with Christ. It is a conflict about authority. It is a conflict about who will rule. Does Jesus Christ have the authority that He claims to have? And therefore, if He claims to have it, and He does have it, then who will rule my life? Will it be me, or will it be Christ? This was always on the minds of the religious leaders of that day. Because they were constantly asking the why question of Jesus. Notice down in verse 21, The scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning in themselves, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? In other words, why is he speaking like he's speaking? Who gave him that authority? Why would he say he has that kind of authority? Over in chapter 5 and verse 30, the Pharisees and scribes begin grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? Who gave you that authority? Why are you exercising yourself in that kind of way? Who sets you above what we say is right? Verse 33 of that same chapter. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. Why are they doing that? What authority do they have? Who gives them this right? Over in chapter 6 in verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, it's an issue of authority. Why are you doing that and saying it's okay? And yet we say you can't. You're grabbing authority. You're saying you have authority when we say you do not. In fact, all of these questions are, I think, best summed up in the very words of the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23, when Jesus says, quote, or when they say to Jesus, "By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority?" You see? This is what it's about. Why should we pay attention to you, Jesus? Why should the people come out and pay attention to you, Jesus? What authority do you have? Nothing, beloved, has changed. The issue today with believing in Jesus Christ is an issue with believing Christ's authority as the living gospel. Either Christ calls the shots, or I call the shots. It's an issue of authority. Who will rule? And that is the issue we find here in this text in Luke chapter 5. Here is the authority of Jesus Christ on display, and specifically, Jesus' authority to do for man what man needs most. To forgive sin. Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sin? There is nothing else that mankind needs more than forgiveness. Just like the psalmist said this morning, blessed is the one who who can dwell in your temple. Whose iniquities have been forgiven. Why? Because man is dead in his sin. Each person before God as divine judge, is guilty and under a death sentence. And the only way for that to be rectified is for that death sentence to be forgiven. For it to be removed from you without forgiveness, without the sentence of death or without the debt of sin being Brushed away, being washed away, being blotted out. No one has real eternal hope. And therefore, all men desire forgiveness for sin. Whether they admit that or not, whether they say that or not, all of them desire forgiveness of sin, which is why they try so hard to improve their life. They work and work and work and work to try to rectify the problems with their life, which is a problem of sin. The only one with the authority to extend to them the forgiveness they so desperately need is Jesus Christ alone. So this is the text about the authority to forgive sin through Jesus Christ text about the forgiveness, that Jesus Christ has authority to forgive sins. And it's highlighted here for us through, through three realities, right? The claim of authority to forgive, Jesus makes the claim, and then the claim is challenged, so there is a challenge to the authority to forgive sin, and then there is this incredible confirmation that he does in fact have authority to forgive sins. So those are the three ways in which we're just going to look at this. The claim, the challenge, and the confirmation. Notice first as we begin though, this. before we get to the claim, we have to kind of set the stage. The stage is set here by Luke and we want to have it set in our minds verses 17-19. through 19. It came about one day while he was teaching. There were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord is present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. and They were trying to bring him in, to set him down in front of him, not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher right in the center. In front of Jesus. He becomes the center of the show. Remember Jesus had already established His authority over sickness. We've already seen that on display in previous parts of our study of Luke. He healed Peter's mother-in-law with a word. He healed a man who had been leprous for we don't know how long. He just was an isolated man because that's what they did. So he heals this leprous man by reaching out and touching him and says, I'm willing, be clean. Something that had never been done before in the ancient world, no one gets cured from that. He had already established his authority over the demonic realm. He had healed the man who who was demon-possessed in their midst as he's in the synagogue. And the demon even cries out and shouts to the people who Jesus is. Why? Because they fear his authority. They know what is the inevitable end for them. And they were hoping, at least in that moment, that it wasn't the day for that to come about. And so they cry out exactly who Jesus is. Because of those things, the crowds are amazed and they only grow larger and larger wherever Jesus goes because of the zealousness albeit a disobedient zeal of the healed leper as Jesus had commanded him to go to the priest don't talk to anyone go to the priest he goes out as we know from Mark's gospel in that same account that he went out and he spread the word about Jesus Christ so the popularity of Christ was such to an extent that he no longer could go freely through the cities. People would flock to wherever he was. He couldn't even move at times. So it's a crushing crowd. It's a a crowd flocking in to see him. I remember when I went to Honduras to be with Ed down there, the people would do that at the church for any guest speaker. And so when Joe and I were there, they would flock to these little buildings. and, And even if it was raining outside, they'd be looking in the doors, crowding around just to see the anomaly that had come there. With Christ, it was a thousand times worse. The fervor had probably maybe settled down a little bit. And so he comes back to Capernaum, Mark 2 tells us. This is where he's at in, during this moment. And he is teaching. Doesn't say he's in the synagogue. Maybe he's in one of the homes, maybe Peter's home again. But it's a crushing crowd. It's a curious crowd. And they're not necessarily there to hear what Christ says. They're not necessarily there to receive the life-giving truth of the Gospel from Jesus Christ so that their souls might be cured. No, they are there to have their diseases cured. They wanted what Christ could give them on on a temporal sense, their desires. The crowd wanted to have their immediate needs met, whatever sickness they might have had and amongst that crowd are the pharisees and the scribes pharisees and scribes why because they're keeping their eye on jesus the crowds are large they've come from all over the place they've heard about him they they're curious about him but more so they want to just keep their eye on him because they want to find reason to get rid of this guy and so they're always watching jesus and you have four friends here who are carrying a man paralyzed. And this man has a desire to see Christ. And as we will see, the paralytic came for the right reasons. I believe his friends even brought him from a heart in their own selves for the right reasons. The four friends and the paralytic in this count believe that Jesus can certainly do physical healing. They have heard about that. They may have even seen that. They understand in their own humanness. They they believe with a with a human kind of faith, much like the same kind of faith that you and I turn on a faucet in in the morning and trust that the city or whoever wherever we live it's it's going to be clean when it comes out and edible for our consumption. It's a human kind of faith. It's a belief that this is good. All of the five had that kind of belief and so they came believing that he could heal this man But what the paralytic really desired was forgiveness. You say, how do you know that? How do do you know that's what he wanted? Because verse 20 clearly says it to us. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. This is the reality of our first point. The claim... Of the authority of Jesus Christ, that He has the authority to forgive sins. Seeing their faith, He said, Friends, your sins are forgiven you. The Bible tells us clearly that without faith, works is dead doesn't matter what you do by way of your own activity, by way of your own righteous desires, without faith, your, your faith is a dead faith. It may appear to be belief, but it isn't a saving belief because it has no outwardness to it. No different than the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And what did Abraham do? Abraham went out and did exactly what God had commanded him to do. It was faith that produced good works with Abraham. And so here is Jesus seeing the visible evidence of his saving faith. And he says to him, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The man somewhere, somehow, in some time, even in the moment, maybe, believed savingly upon Jesus Christ. There was certainly a desire for physical healing, for sure. But what Jesus reveals to all of them that are there that day, that could at least hear him, was that there was a far more serious problem with this man It was the same problem with all who were there, although they didn't understand their problem to this point. This body of this man was certainly paralyzed with disease, but he had a far serious problem that was more serious than his outward disease. It was an inward disease of his soul. And that needed greater healing. And that healing could only come through forgiveness. And so notice that Jesus deals with the most important matter of this man's life first. Jesus deals with the inside first because the greatest need for this man is the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, we know, we know just simply from that, that the paralytic must have had faith that Christ could forgive. He must have believed that Jesus could be the one who Forgave his sin because Jesus says to him, Your sins are forgiven you. You say, Why do you say that? I say that because Jesus doesn't forgive the sin of those who don't repent and believe in him for salvation. You understand that? Jesus doesn't just simply carte blanche forgive sin and hope one day he can apply it to those who realize they're sinners. That's heresy. That's not the doctrine of the Bible. Jesus doesn't forgive sin for those who don't repent. You say, how do you know that? Because there is no forgiveness where there is no recognition and confession of sin. You say, really? Yes. This is what Jesus Himself said. John 8.24 Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. There is no forgiveness without faith in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says to this young man, friend, your sins are forgiven you, the paralytic may have desired physical healing, but in his heart he knew his sinfulness and he desired soul healing much more than his physical healing and he knew that Christ was the one. I can only imagine and only speculate in my own imaginations that even if his friends went there and said, well, the crowd is just too big, we can't get you in, we, sorry, we've tried, he would have continued to say, no, you must find another way, I have to see this one. I have to get with him. He would not let it rest. And so Jesus makes this positive declaration of fact about this man's heart. And he meets this man's deepest need. He brought peace to His conscience before He ever brought healing to His body. Christ knew His heart. And He cleansed the guilt of His sin. And in that very moment, in that very moment, beloved, it's not written for us there, but we know it's true, in that very moment, a divine miracle had taken place. In that very moment as Jesus lets him know what he has accomplished on his behalf, your sins are forgiven you. A miracle had taken place and it was greater than any physical healing this man would ever receive because it was the holy God forgiving the sins of this unholy man. It's rather ironic also because Jesus's words are in harmony with what the Jewish rabbis would have said, although from a wrong thinking of works, the rabbis taught that no sick man is healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. So Jesus is even taking their foolish statements about their own works righteousness. Listen, once you're... ailments are gone by your efforts or by some other means, then you can have your sins forgiven. Jesus is taking even that foolishness and showing them, guess what? I'll prove it another way this man's sins have been forgiven, even in your own foolish statements. And So Jesus' claim was that He had authority. I have authority to forgive sins. Who will rule you? It's going to be me? Jesus or will it be you that's his claim second the challenge the challenge of that authority notice what the scribes do verse 21 the scribes and the pharisees begin reasoning they're processing they're thinking about this they're saying who is this who speaks blasphemies It's not just a general question about who is this person. That would have stopped with who is this man? We don't know this person. No, it's who is this one who speaks blasphemies? This one who is blaspheming God? Why? Because no one can forgive sins except God alone. They know that. They know the truth. The reality is they hated the claim. They hated what Jesus had claimed to do for this man. They hated His claim to the extent that they were accusing Him of speaking blasphemies against God, the God they say they love. And in part, their thinking is right, at least in part, at least the last part, only God can forgive sins. They're right about that. But they refuse. It's not that they can't. They refuse to recognize the divinity of Christ from which flowed the authority to forgive sin. They refuse to recognize that. The only conclusion they could come to was he's blaspheming. No way can he be the one promised. They're so opposite from the paralytic. They had come from regions around. They had gotten there under their own power. They had come to keep an eye on Jesus because they thought they were okay. Here is this one who has to be carried to Jesus. In fact, has to be lowered down by his friends to be right in front of Jesus. Cannot get there on his own. And the Pharisees who are there sitting with Jesus in the same place who brought themselves there by their own power are the ones who will not see. They're so opposite. Their hearts are so paralyzed with sin. They see no need, no need to believe Jesus for forgiveness. Why? Because they saw themselves as already good with God, they were already righteous in their own eyes. You see, what they had done in reasoning in their own minds about even themselves, they had come to the damningly miscalculated conclusion about the ravages of sin in their own heart. And even their own sinfulness didn't do what Jesus was saying. So their revulsion to the authority of Christ is seen clearly, and it's twofold. It's twofold. They revolt against His authority Because they refuse to believe that he was the one who he's proving himself to be. That he is in fact God in the flesh. They refuse to believe that. That's the first reason why they revolt against his authority. Because no way are we going to follow you. And secondly, they revolt against His authority because they thought forgiveness could be attained through some kind of means, through some kind of action on their own part, rather than by a humble request of a contrite sinner before God that entrusts Himself to God alone. Sadly, their barriers to Christ are the same for many today who refuse. I don't want Jesus Christ. I don't want to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Why? Because they refuse to recognize the need. I don't need forgiveness. I'm good enough. Or they believe that their greatest need can be satisfied through their own human efforts. Believe in Jesus? No way. No way. I'm not doing that. And notice, ironically... Notice that God uses their foolish rejection to highlight the very deity of Christ. For they say to themselves, Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. They're right. They are rejecting Jesus Christ and acknowledging the reality of who God is. Only God can forgive sins. They have set themselves up for a major shocker. And so Christ reveals His deity right before them. He exposes their thoughts, notice. Jesus, aware of their reasonings. That's the omnipotence of God. He knows everything. Jesus, they're reasoning to themselves. They're not saying it to anybody else. They might be looking at each other and rolling their eyes and doing all those things we do when we doubt something, but we don't want anybody else to know we're doubting it. They're reasoning to themselves, hmm, how can this be? Jesus knows what they're reasoning. knows what they're thinking. Jesus, the divine mind reader. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? I wonder what they thought. Who, who told him how, how, how does he know what I'm thinking only God knows the thoughts of men maybe that came into their mind wait a minute only God knows the thoughts of men how can he know the, my thoughts no they're too arrogant too blind to even realize that even though they knew what God said to the prophets right First Samuel 16 verse 7 man looks on the outside but the Lord looks at the heart First Chronicles eight nine. He, that is God, searches all hearts. Here is Jesus searching their hearts, knowing the reasonings, knowing the reasonings of their heart. Jeremiah 17.9 and 10 The heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Jesus knows their individual hearts. He knows their collective heart. Jesus reads their minds. And in saying those very words in verse 22, He's opening wide their thinking. He is now entered into their own brains, if you will, exposing for everybody to see, you are wicked men. Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Claiming that he has authority over sin, death. And a religious leader challenged that claim. Who do you think you are? Only God can do that. If we were writing this, we would probably write in here. And Jesus said, you're right guys, only God can do that. Watch this. That's how we did it. Because we been too influenced by nonsense in Hollywood and everything else. And we'd have some little shining lights and flashing smoke and everything else, you know. Now notice the confirmation of the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. Jesus says, which is easier? What's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, It's easier to say your sins are forgiven you than to say rise and walk, right? One is unverifiable, the other has to be verified by the reality of rising and walking. What's easier to say, guys? Almost to imply, listen, I told this guy that, I'm just trying to help his conscience. What's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or to rise and walk. But, here's the contrast, in order that you may know. I don't want even you to be confused anymore. What a grace of God, even for these who are rejecting Jesus Christ outright. I want you to know for sure, hearkens back all the way to the beginning of chapter 1, where Luke says, Theophilus, I want you to have certainty about Jesus Christ. Well, here's certainty, guys. I want you to know. In order that you might know that the Son of Man, that's a title of Jesus Christ, a title of deity on earth, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... I want you to know that I do have the authority I claimed. That when I said to the man, your sins are forgiven, I have that authority. I want you to know that for sure. And so watch this. I'll say to this guy, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher and go home. You want verifiable proof that I can forgive sins? Watch, I'll heal this guy. Which is easier, to speak of forgiveness or for me to show physical healing to your very physical eyes? In other words, what shows greater authority in a visible, objective way? The answer is obvious. The greater way to show visible authority was to heal. Why? Because forgiveness isn't visible. Just like faith isn't visible. James says, really? You say you have faith? I say I'll show you my works. I can't see what is invisible, but I can certainly see what is visible. I can't see whether you're forgiven of your sins or not, but I can tell this, what's your life like now? This is what Jesus is saying. In order that you may know I have the authority to forgive sins, hey, pal, you came here for forgiveness. I know you're paralyzed. Get up. Take that thing out of here and go home. Wow. I guess I could ask us a question this morning. Have you ever visibly seen whether sin was forgiven or not. Have you ever seen someone's forgiveness? Have you ever seen it? That the, the concept and idea and the reality of forgiveness of sins here before you? No, but you can certainly see the result of that forgiveness in the life of a man whom Jesus has cleansed, right? You want to see the reality of the forgiveness in this man's life? Watch, he's going to get up here and walk out of here. Believe upon Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. How do I know if we've been forgiven? How do I know if I'm forgiven? My life is new. I'm changed by God. I live differently. Certainly this man didn't walk out of there and say, Hey guys, come with me and put the bed down and carry me away again. No, he didn't do that. He had brand new legs. He's running. So it's not simply a question of what is easier to say. It's rather what is harder to prove. They should have simply just believed his authority. He had already proven numerous times that he had authority over all kinds of things. for Both the acts that he did and what he said. The forgiveness of sin is an act of God alone. They already said that. Only God can forgive sins. The healing of this man would have been an act of God alone. But in order to confirm His authority to forgive, Christ says to him, Rise and take up your stretcher and go home. You see the whole point of the event? This is the whole point of the event. Here it is. To claim authority, to claim authority to be able to do something and not be able to do it, certainly would have been blasphemy against God. I claim authority to forgive sins, but I can't really forgive sins. That is blasphemy. But if the physical healing of this man will validate my authority... It will be both objective, it will be both conclusive that I am not just who you think I am. I am God in the flesh. And so this test centers on his authority to carry out his right as God to forgive sins. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is, listen, I will do the visibly verifiable thing to prove to you. That I have the authority to do what is visibly unverifiable. Somebody says, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know my sins are forgiven me? You are a new creature in Christ, it says. The old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. You have been healed by Christ. You have been forgiven by Christ. Your sins are forgiven you. The penalty of your guilt and sin is behind. It is no longer picked up. You are enveloped in Christ and you are a new creature in Christ. You walk on those new legs. And So Christ does the visible miracle to prove His authority to do the invisible miracle. Scribes and the Pharisees are right there. They're watching. They're hearing. They're listening. They knew full well what the Old Testament said about miraculous signs. That that would accompany the Messiah when He would come to earth. And so if all Jesus would have said is your sins are forgiven you to this man, no one could verify that happened. But to make this man walk would be a visible proof that he indeed had the authority to forgive which meant that he is God and so he says your sins are forgiven you and if he says your sins are forgiven you by faith in him your sins are forgiven you there's a lot of charlatans out there in our world beloved who claim to have the power to absolve sins some of you came out of Catholic churches and went to the priest and confessed your sins. He said, I'll oh, do this, do this, and do this. Go through all this genuflecting and everything else and your sins will be forgiven to you. That is blasphemy. Do it without proof. No proof. Don't worry about it. Just come back next week. Make sure you drop a little change in the thing when you come. Any pretender can come and make those kind of claims, but only God only God can tell a paralyzed man to walk and then make it happen immediately. That's exactly what happens. Notice verse 25, at once. It wasn't over time. It wasn't through a process. It was at once he rose. He didn't rise outside. Jesus didn't say, okay, okay guys, I talked to him. Carry him out of here and in about five days he'll, he'll, he'll start to walk. No. At once he rose up before them. He took up what he had been carried in on and went home glorifying God. He couldn't get in the place because the crowd was so huge. But I'll tell you what, they parted the water for him to get out of the place. Visible proof in the midst of a curious crowd The confrontational leaders are right there. His cure was instantaneous. It was immediate. It was complete. Verse twenty six says, and they were all seized with astonishment. They began glorifying God. They 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 saw it to be for what it was. They were just astonished. It seems amazing to me that the crowd, it seems like every time Luke talks about the crowd, they're just that. They're just astonished. I find it rather interesting also that, that Luke makes no specific comment, at least here, as to what the scribes and the Pharisees did following the miracle. He doesn't say specifically. Anything that they did. They, they might be included in the pronoun they. they. They might be included in that, although I find it very hard to believe that they were glorifying God for what happened with this man. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, the very next thing they do is grumble because Jesus seems to be hanging out with sinners, as they say, and then He is doing things on the Sabbath which they don't like. If they are included in that pronoun, then its that's all they were. They were just astonished. They weren't in any way moved to repentance. They just thought it to be an earthly trick of some kind. They see the miracle. They hear what Jesus says. They are faced with the reality of His authority to do what He said. They are forced to accept the fact that this man has just had his sins forgiven him. Even under their teaching, his disease has been healed. And yet they make no comment. No comment at all. Why? I believe it's the undeniable evidence of the authority of Jesus Christ just left them silent. They were silent. Why? Because their unbelief is inexcusable. All they were was impressed. Even the crowd, just impressed by what they saw. Their unbelief is inexcusable. You say, why do you say that? Well, well, I think the parallel account in Matthew chapter 28 tells us why. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. Matthew chapter 9 verse 8. You can write it down. It says this, When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority, get this, to men. To men. The religious leaders and many in the crowd still saw Jesus as a man. Just a mere man. They missed the lesson. They missed it all. God had given them a perfect visual of Jesus Christ. He is God and in Him is the power and the authority to give man what he needs most. Man needs the forgiveness of sin. The question for us this morning is who rules you? Who rules you? Is it Christ? Or is it you? Who rules you? Is He the authority? Or are you trying on your own efforts to either gain the forgiveness you so desperately need or even if you are saved, trying by your own efforts to live out your own authority and not following and walking after Christ? We have to understand something this morning as we come to the communion table here in just a moment. Christ still forgives. Aren't you glad to hear that? Christ still forgives. He has the authority to forgive, He is God alone. But He only forgives those who know they need it. There is no forgiveness. Without confession, and repentance, faith upon Him. So that's what we have to ask ourselves. Do I need it? Do I need it? They didn't think they needed it. If you need it, come to Christ. Come to Christ. He has the authority to give it. And it will change your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning we have done justice to your word. We have heard your message. That you are the one who has authority over all things. That you are the only one who can forgive sin. Such a desperate need of ours. That you are the one we must run to. There is no other. That you are the one we must plead with. Have mercy on our souls. Forgive us of our sin. We know we are sinners. We need your grace. Without you we have no hope left to ourselves we are on a road to nowhere but in you in Christ there is hope there is fullness of joy there is newness of life there is forgiveness of sin And if we will confess our sin you are faithful and just to forgive thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior Thank you that in you and you alone is the authority and power to absolve the penalty that we have before you only in Christ. Thank you for accepting His righteousness. Thank you for imputing it to those who believe. May we look to the communion table this morning with that on our minds and our hearts. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.